Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is the historian Malcolm McKinnon, who teaches at Victoria University. He's here to talk about his new book, The Broken Decade, Prosperity, Depression, and Recovery in New Zealand, 1928 to 1939, published by Otago University Press in September 2016. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jason. Welcome. Well, it's great to have you on. So, Malcolm, why write a history of the period 1928 to 1939? What was missing in accounts of the period that you wanted to address? Good question. Firstly, the, the, the actual dates are a little bit arbitrary. So it's essentially it's about the 1930s. But because I was starting earlier, I wanted to be a bit more generous in time. And I guess um, it's essentially a book addressing certain questions in New Zealand history rather than questions in global depression history. And there's a very strong narrative in New Zealand history about what happened in the Depression. And I felt that that very strong narrative, partly because of its strength, left out quite a few things and, and gave some emphases which in closer look weren't justified. So in what ways was the Depression in New Zealand similar and different from the more well-known stories in Europe and the United States? Well, the, the overall contours are essentially the same. That is, if you look at the time frame, I guess the major differences would be, firstly, that the impact came a little later uh, in New Zealand, and that's partly on account of it being a a dependent economy, and therefore the kind of impact that happened first in the US and Europe took a little longer to reach a country like New Zealand. Secondly, compared to most of the um, European countries in the United States, the recovery was faster and sooner, to the extent that in some respects it's not appropriate to describe the later 1930s as a depression era, which partly explains my subtitle. One of the things that you're interested in is how the Depression was experienced versus how it's remembered. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The experience of it, as you can imagine, and this, of course, would be true in any country, is extremely diverse. Um, You have massive levels of unemployment, but not everyone was unemployed. You have levels of deprivation, but not everyone was deprived. So, But those other stories, the stories of people who weren't out of work and weren't um, so deprived, because they're not peculiar, obviously, to the Depression, are far less likely to be remembered. So in the opening sections of the book, uh, we, we get a picture of a rapidly changing New Zealand. Uh, technology, culture, social changes, changes in the economy. What does New Zealand in 1928 uh, look like? Well, it, it, in a way, you've captured it. I mean, it, it looked in its own terms, like a very modern society. It was a society that had taken to the automobile very, very rapidly. It was urbanizing. And so it seemed to the people at that time to be a very, very different society from the one that had obtained, um, say, before the the First World War or in the 1890s. Church-going was declining. Um, The cinema had come along. 
I mean, these are these are phenomena that you'll recognize from the United States as well, and they weren't as marked as in the United States, but they were very definitely there. And there was a sense of buoyancy across the society, even although there were clear, if you like, warning signs of difficult times to come. Some of the interesting figures uh, that that we learn about uh, are politicians, um, and you know, listeners may not be so familiar with some of these names. But tell us a little bit about Joseph Ward and, and George Forbes. Okay, Joseph Ward, and certainly, yeah, I would not expect them to be familiar to a, an audience outside New Zealand, and they're not that familiar any longer to people within New Zealand. But Ward was a characteristic, long-time politician. In the late 1920s, when he became somewhat unexpectedly prime minister again, he'd been in political life for 30, going on 40 years. So he was a stayer. And in many ways, he um, conjured up a, 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 a belief in prosperity and good times that fortunately, in a way for him, was borne out in the year that he was in office. And then he fell very sick in the middle of uh, in the latter part of 1929, and uh, with his sickness in a, in a curious kind of way, uh, economic conditions also started to deteriorate. Um, so he was a, a figure who, for the New Zealanders of that time, uh, who might have been, you know, despite what I've said about the prosperity, might have been feeling a little anxious, was seen as someone who would conjure up those good times again. Forbes was almost the exact opposite, although they were in the same political party. He was a cautious figure. He came from a rural rather than a moneyed background, and he reacted to the hard times as as descended on the country when he took over from Ward as Prime Minister by battening down the hatches. I guess that's an expression you would know in the US as well, and cutting back spending and therefore in some respects making the hard times harder. What do we know about how uh, Maori people experienced the Depression in New Zealand? In many ways, uh, the story is a very different one from that of the non-Maori majority. The Maori population at that time was overwhelmingly rural. It was relatively small. It had been declining for many decades and was only just starting to increase. And that was something that people did not actually realize was happening. And that was, in a way, a sign of Maori vitality, of course. But um, the downturn in the rural economy hit the Maori population who depended very much uh, for income where they were not subsistence on wage work on farms very, very hard. And so um, you get, in a way, the beginnings of what will later lead to, it didn't really start at this time, of a migration of Maori away from country districts into the cities. And what do we know about how New Zealand uh, men and women experienced the Depression? Well, uh, that's, uh, in a way, it it plays out on what you might think of as um, predictable gender patterns. And and I guess I'd make two main points about that. The first was that in terms of the uh, assistance that was offered the unemployed, that was highly gendered because men were understood to be the primary wage earners in any household and therefore assistance was directed at them. And the assumption was that women who might be working, if they were out of work, would be supported by male householders and would not be, uh, therefore were not the objects of direct assistance. This was very, very much debated during the Depression. And in many ways, that debate 
reflected the fact that the circumstances, particularly of young women, had changed very markedly through that 1920s decade. Many, many more young women than had been the case before that were working. And it did seem to them quite unfair, particularly when they started having to pay an unemployment tax, that they would not get assistance if they were became out of work. And so slowly through the course of the Depression, you see that um, debate taking place and attitudes changing to, to the way that women should be assisted. We could talk more broadly about the different experiences of, of women as householders um, in a general sense, but that's, that's a key development in the Depression that I've just described. You, you mentioned this, but maybe you can talk a little bit more uh, deeply. What were some of the actions that the New Zealand government took, and, and how did those actions fare? Well, uh, you can, in a way, uh, divide it into two phases, I think, or maybe three. In the first phase, the government, um, and this is once people recognised that something was happening, that really only was toward the end of 1930, so you know, a year after the Wall Street crash. Um, what they looked at was their own books, and they saw that suddenly the government had far less money coming in than it had been used to, and it was also very indebted. So the thing, so everything it tried to do at that point was to basically cut back its spending, to some extent to raise taxes, but particularly to cut spending. Now that, of course, you know, becomes very controversial because cutting spending often means cutting jobs and so on, and making, and also conveying a sense of pessimism to the wider community. But that's a very marked pattern through 1931 and into 32, and then slowly. And this is partly reflecting debates going on in other parts of the world, of course. There comes a view that no, it's, you can't just keep cutting costs uh, because you're simply going to the whole economy will seize up. And what you've got to do is find ways of raising prices. And from about the middle of 1932 on, that was the dominant attitude in government. But the government and the business interests and other groups diverged markedly as to how that should be done. And that division of opinion about how it should be done in some respects slowed the recovery. I described New Zealand as having a relatively rapid recovery, but in some respects it was slower than it might have been if there had not been this division of opinion about how to reflate the economy. Why is the 1935 election uh, such a big one for New Zealand? It's a very big one because it was the first time a Labour government, a Labour Party government was elected in New Zealand. And uh, in the overall scheme of things, um, and I mentioned this at places in the book, um, Labour parties had developed in the United Kingdom and in the Australian states and in New Zealand in the course of the preceding 30 or 40 years. But they, and they had managed to form governments in the United Kingdom and they'd formed governments in most Australian states well before this. So there was a real sense that Labour and, and there are reasons for this, which I discuss, had been thwarted in gaining political power. So when it gained it, and gained it very spectacularly uh, in terms of its electoral success in 1935, it was seen as a red-letter day. And it's been remembered like that. And part of my debate in the book uh, you know, with, the, with the existing interpretation is that this has led to a kind of an exaggeration of the significance of what actually changed at that time. I don't try to suggest nothing changed at all, but I think the excitement, as it were, has overridden some of the cooler analysis that's useful to apply. 
So looking back at the decade that you write about, uh, what is the legacy of the depression and recovery? Uh, you, you wrote this book, I would imagine, uh, in, in the wake of the global financial crisis. How how did that impact uh, kind of the topic that you were writing about and how the legacy of that decade is remembered? Well, it's a, it's a very good question. And it's one I must admit I've struggled with, Jason, because in some respects, what I'm arguing in the book is that the depression was not as fundamental in understanding the course of events in New Zealand since then as people have remembered it as being. So in a paradoxical kind of a way, I wouldn't quite say I'm demoting it, but I'm contextualizing it, certainly. And what was really striking writing it uh, through the course of the global financial crisis was the sense that we were not going to see a replay of the depression, either in New Zealand or globally, and, and you'll be well aware of, of the debate that took place over that in the US and, and Europe and so on in the immediate aftermath of the GFC. So that was a kind of a um, an interesting wrinkle on it as well. And I and I make the point that even although you know there was a kind of a sense of hard times in the aftermath of the GFC, New Zealand did not experience anything remotely like the depression of the 30s, nor did it actually experience the kind of austerity that uh, arose, you know, there was policies were pursued in the Eurozone as it, as it, as it faced all kinds of crunch uh, issues in the wake of the GFC. So it's, it's a kind of a, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of non-finding um, and uh, probably means that the book's a little harder for people to get their head around because its arguments are much more tied specifically to the decade about which it's written. And I think I finish off by saying, you know, we will be as puzzled or generations to come will be as puzzled by the decisions we make in the 2010s as, as we are puzzled by the decisions that were made or not made in the 1930s. Malcolm, Arnold, thank you for being on the show today. That's Malcolm McKinnon. He's a historian and teaches at, the, at Victoria University. His new book is The Broken Decade, Prosperity, Depression and Recovery in New Zealand, 1928 to 1939. It's published by Otago University Press in September 2016. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.